Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing good. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been working further on the book. Yeah. Um, the Ray Wenderlich uh, 3D game development in Unity. Unity Games by Tutorials, version 1.3. Um. I finished up chapter five, which was all kind of pathfinding stuff and tweaking that, and then did chapter six and seven. Six was getting into the animations and animator engine, and seven was sound. Um, I just have chapter eight left, and then I'll be done with the first game. Okay. Um do you struggle with the terms animation and animator? I don't struggle with the terms, but the way they chain together, like using them confuses the heck out of me. Yeah. Like there was something I was working on where I'm like, I'm working on animation, but I'm not working on animation. I'm working in the animator. I'm working on animatoring. Like, yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it. Yeah, the the whole thing's a little funky. Like, I think I may get there, and there's parts of it that I almost really like. And then there's parts that just really rub me weird. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you make the, an, you got the animation, and then you tie the animation vaguely to the particular thing, the game object. So like yeah, a yeah it's, game it's almost... objects get a collection of animations, and you got an what is that an animation controller, and then the animator sends commands to the animations. Yeah, kinda? it's a little it's it's a little weird. It, it, like talking through it, it would be like if I said to you, "Hey Dave, you can walk across the room," and you said, "Okay." But there was nothing to make you walk across the room. Like, I just bestowed the ability for you to walk across the room, but you still need a reason to or a cause. Like, it's really, yeah, it's a bit confusing. Yeah, I've also just gotten to the point where I'm used to, okay, I can define this property, this field in a class, and I can make it public so it's accessible from the interface. But when I'm doing animations, I'm going to define those properties entirely in the Unity UI. And they exist yeah. in code kind of nowhere, except I can set them in certain cases. Yeah. Like I, I can read them and set them, but they're not... They're properties that, that are... They feel artificial for where I am currently in my way of looking at the way Unity works. Um. This is basically, but basically, from in in code, you have to get the objects animation component, whatever it's called, and then call the properties on that. Just it's a bit weird. Yeah, to to set them, but the the weird like that actually makes sense. The problem is that I never defined those properties anywhere in code. Yeah, just that little drop down widget. Right, the thing in the in the animator. I define them there. So the animation doesn't know anything about its various states. The animator is the thing that knows about controlling those. And I'm sure in a huge project or something with a lot of animations, it'll all make a heck of a lot more sense and probably even seem a little elegant. But right now it's just freaking confusing. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's see, I got a couple other comments on that one. Uh, here, here's my line. Is it okay if my OCD has issues with the fact that I can't make the lines straight or orthogonal in the animator state diagram? Hmm. Like, I don't have pixel level precision over exactly where each of those little boxes are placed. And because I don't have pixel level precision, I can't make it so that the line that connects two things that are one above the other, that line is off by three degrees. <laughs> Nice. Because the size of the two boxes is slightly different. So none of the lines are sh- what I would think of as straight. They're all straight lines. But the, none of them are, are nicely Cartesian, 
you know, 90 degree orthogonal to the plane, that kind of thing. They're all slightly off angle. And I really find that annoying. <laughs> and I get it. It's okay, except it's really, really not okay. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I'm embarrassed to ask them to fix it, but they really need to fix that. Like, let me hold down the shift key and move those things by single pixels or something. Like, you know, use the arrow keys to reposition. And watch, I'm going to find out that one of those things that I just mentioned actually works. Yeah. Um, but it was it was bothersome. I mean, the simple solution is to stop trying to make straight lines. Sure, Joe. That's absolutely a simple solution. I mean, just make everything diagonal. Yeah. Unfortunately, most of my experience with doing that sort of diagram is done in uh, OmniGraffle. Mm-hmm. And OmniGraffle has lovely support for making those things nicely lined up. So yeah, but they, to... don't, but they don't do anything. These at least animate your space marine. Which is great and all, but they're not straight. So I'm just, I just had a flash of like six months in the future. The first product that you make has nothing to do with VR, but you just rebuilt the animator tool in Unity, a, a custom version for the asset store that works exactly the same, but has straight lines. What I probably end up doing is getting the, uh, what is it, like the enterprise version of Unity, which comes with source code, mm-hmm. and modifying the source code so that it supports aligning things, and then presenting a patch and going, please, please, please put this in the main thing so I can stop paying for the enterprise version. Nice. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what other things like this bother people. It's I, I get that it's really small, but it really bothers me. <laughs> um, another one that, that kind of doesn't make sense that it bothers me, but it bothers me is the little the little triangle of checkboxes that you use to do collisions mm-hmm. to control what what layers can collide with what. Um In order to say that this particular layer doesn't collide with anything else, you have to turn off both the entire row for that item and the entire column for that item. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Because only half of them are in each place. But simultaneously, I was trying to figure out how to fix that. And if you just make it, you know, if there's nine layers and you just have a nine by nine grid, it means as I'm turning off things in a row, they should also automatically be turning off in a column. Like, they're really just duplicating checkboxes to do that. I don't like mm-hmm. the way they've arranged the checkboxes, but they're not wrong. Yeah. It's just well, I think they're... always unintuitive at first glance. Well, they're not necessarily duplicates of the checkboxes because I think they... They set it up in such a way that item B can collide with item A, but you can still have it where item A can't collide with item B. So you could, it's almost like you have half of a collision happening. So the current arrangement doesn't do that. It doesn't? As far as I can tell. Um, there is one intersection for each set of two layers. Then what did you say about duplicating the checkboxes? So what I was talking about duplicating the checkboxes, that's if you said, look, if I've got nine layers, then it's a nine by nine grid. Mm -hmm. Then we could do what you're talking about. Where collisions could be one directional without the other. Hmm. Which is kind of the more like the way we did it in SpriteKit. Is that SpriteKit could say... This object collide, you know, a bullets collide with walls, but walls don't collide with bullets. And it just ha- became a question of where the trigger could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was I was assuming that's how it works in Unity too. It doesn't appear to everything that I looked at. It really just looks like there's a single intersection point. 
for basically everything. Hmm. Um, I'm actually glancing at it right now. Yeah. That's that's it. You know, if you've got like what 12 layers in this case or something like that, there are always 12 checkboxes. Yeah. So, anyway, it, it's eventually I'm going to get much more comfortable with that. But right now it just always looks a little funky. <laughs> So one thing that I thought was really weird about that chapter was the example, one of the first examples anyway, that they gave you with animating something was lowering the walls. <laughs> and I just thought that was like, why didn't you teach me how to move the camera? I'm never, ever going to lower walls like that. <laughs> just let me paint a verbal picture. Basically, you're in this, you're building a space marine game where you've got to fight aliens, and you're in some kind of arena with large, chunky, low poly walls all around you in, I think, a hexagon. And the their example for animating a couple of things, just to show you the tools, was to take three segments of the wall that are closest to the camera and just lower them anytime the player walks into the portion of the scene where the walls would block the the camera it just seemed really kludgy to me yeah it's it's actually an octagon and they're doing third person isometric and so you are not directly overhead you are back at an angle and that because the walls of the arena are relatively high, there are places in the arena where your character could stand and you can't see your character anymore. And so some games solve that by making the walls transparent. So as you get close to those walls, they suddenly become transparent and you can see through them and see what's happening behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, that's the way Diablo did it for a long time. I've seen it in a bunch of other places. Um. But yeah, their solution was make the walls shorter when you get close. I mean, I, I got it. They they taught it. But yeah, that was a slightly artificial example. Yeah. So do you have your, your bobblehead warrior bobbling its head now? Uh, yeah, that happened all the way back in like chapter four. Okay. Um, There's apparently going to redo it in chapter eight. There's some other variant that that they that they mentioned they were going to do. I haven't gotten there yet. It's in chapter eight. Okay. Um. What was that? It's just been a while since I went through that. I'm trying to remember the order of everything. Yeah. Um. Chapter seven had the first reference that I didn't get. Oh yeah. Um. The line was, and I'm probably going to mess this name up as. Corinne Bailey Ray would say it's time to put your records on. I, I had to run a Google search. Apparently yeah. it's a song. Never heard of it. it. Me neither. But I'd gotten all the other little references and things, you know, Terminator stuff and alien it, stuff. And Is it a very old song or a very new song? It seems relatively recent-ish. Hmm. Um... I mean, I turned 35 this year. I'm no longer part of the demographic. I'm not really supposed to know anything anymore. Song released in 2006. So, <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Anyway, it was just a curiosity. They, they like to throw little pop culture references and things into the book. And I usually get them. It was chapter seven before they placed a pop culture reference I didn't get. It's another indication that I'm getting old. <laughs> um, here was a goofy one. So at one point in the demo, they have you doing paste component as new. So we're trying mm-hmm. to move an audio source uh, component from one game object to another game object. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of copy it in one place and then delete it from there and then go over to this other space and hit uh, paste component as new. The problem is that in order to hit paste component as new, you're actually hitting the pop-up on a completely different component. Yeah. That's... And 
that one completely broke my brain. I tried doing it a couple of times and like made it work. And then I immediately deleted that component, made a new component manually, and then did uh, paste values into mm-hmm. component or whatever. Because that totally makes sense. Like I make the component and then I override its values and that's all fine. <laughs> but clicking on one object, it's like if the if the new row button was on the other rows. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, and that violates everything that I think I understand about interface design. I don't know if other human beings have this problem. This may be like database designer mental infection. Maybe. I have I have seen a couple of apps that I've immediately deleted that have you know, like a table row with a min, you know, a value in the middle and a minus on one side and a plus on the other side, and the minus deletes the current row and the plus adds another row after it. Like that is insanity. Ugh. This is just total chaos. Ugh. Yeah, it's unacceptable. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's gonna be slower to to do it with the multiple steps. But it makes so such dramatically more sense to me that I'd almost like to make the other option disappear. Yeah. Because I'm never going to use it. And all it's ever going to do is make me remember that spot where the interface is bad. <laughs> like every time I hit that pop-up, I'm going to go, oh yeah, there's that other feature that I'm never ever going to use because that's horrible. Um, like thanks for saving me the extra four mouse clicks, but I'll do it the hard way. Yeah, I haven't done a lot of copying and pasting of components at this point. I've done a lot of duplicating game objects and changing things, but it's it's not usually it's rare that I want to copy and paste one component between objects. It's usually, you know, I've got four or five components all set up and duplicate the object and change some parameters on each of them. So so far one of my earlier predictions was correct. That drawing the line between what's code and what I want to make interface to code is very, very weird. <laughs> um, and I think part of the difficulty is I'm completely wrong in how I'm thinking about it. <clears throat> I'm not making interface. I'm making code that happens to be reflected in interface. Mm-hmm. But the distinction between those, it sounds simple, but the distinction between those two things is still causing difficulty in my brain. And by interface, you just mean making stuff show up in the inspector? Yes. Okay. And, and But not just like, which things do I make public or private? But like, okay, I need to, uh, I'm going to make a new, like the, the upgrade. You know, there's a power up that we can run over. And so what, elements of the settings of this thing am i going to interrogate at runtime from the hierarchy and what elements of this thing that i need am i going to set in code from another object like a public property that's just set from somewhere else and then which things am i going to um hard code is like private constants and which things am I going to make public and actually edit from the interface? See that last one. I, I know that these tools really exist as a way of having programmers expose elements to level designers so that they can do things without having to worry about all the details. I, I've been using it much more as a script parameter type of situation, just like FileMaker script parameters in FileMaker, we don't really have great tools for script parameters. There's just a, a parameter space where you can dump text into, and that text can be evaluated as calculations or it can be encoded as data. You can do whatever you want with it, but yeah. you have to so do it yourself. Th- this is this is one of those topics where there is no way to explain the way FileMaker does script parameters <laughs> to other programmers in any way that doesn't make us sound nuts for ever using the tool in the first place. <laughs> That's uh, true. So, suffice it to say, for those who are not experienced with it, it sounds horrifying. It works. 
It's only moderately unpleasant. Yeah. So proceed. But I'm thinking of this in a similar way of just using things in the inspector to just pass data from other parts of the scene in. So I need to get I, I, I need to get a property on another class. Let me pass in the object that that class is attached to as a component and do something with it then. So just basically it's, it's a complex parameter passing mechanism, the way that I'm using it mostly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm trying to get used to the thought process of thinking ahead about it a little bit and being able to say, this is a value that has to come from someplace else, but I don't, I don't want to hard code it in the code and well, I also don't want to publish it as interface. Well, you're, you're, you're overthinking it. Where is the value? That's what you have to start from. Is the value on another game object instantiated in the scene? Mm -hmm. Then you're going to need to get an instance of that. Right, but not necessarily through the interface. There's still two ways to do it, three ways to do it. Yeah, but the easiest one is through the interface. Maybe. It's only easiest if what I'm getting the value from is something that's hard-coded at design time. Like if I'm tying it into a, a prefab, great. But if I need an, an instantiation of that prefab as a game object, I'm going to have to get that at runtime. Like if I need a pointer to the particular critter that I just shot, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to set that up at the, initially. Hmm. Trying to remember how they did that later on in the book. Um, and, and this is also, I just finished chapter seven. So I don't actually have any idea what I'm talking about. And I'm, I fully admit that. That's fine. Yeah, neither do I. I mean, that's um, kind of what this podcast is about. Yeah. I did have fun. We were talking last week about public versus private versus that serialize. Mm -hmm. keyword or whatever the term is for it. Yeah. Um, there's another one, which is non-serialized. Mm -hmm. And so non-serialized will take a public field and make it not show up in the inspector, which almost sounds counterintuitive. <laughs> but uh, it was a particular case where... Um, they didn't, I, I started hunting for it because I saw where I wanted it in one of the examples it was a spot where we had a public property that was, what was it? It was the, uh, when they spawn the upgrade, they make a pointer to the gun so that when you pick the upgrade, the upgrade can tell the gun, increase your fire rate. Mm -hmm. And... The thing is, I need a public variable there so that I can shove a pointer to the gun in at the time that the upgrade is created. So it needs to be public, but I'm never, ever going to set it in the inspector. Yeah. And so it always shows up in the inspector with no setting. And that's just okay. And in my brain, that goes wait a second, if I'm never, ever, ever going to set it there, it shouldn't appear there. And the trick is, you can totally make it not appear there using this non-serialized, system.non-serialized. Well, what about... allow you to make a public thing, but not show it. The one I'm seeing is hide in, hide in inspector. Say what? Just under the attributes page on Unity. There's a whole bunch of those. They have other ones? I mean, I liked non-serialized because it was just the inverse of serialized. Yeah, under the scripting API documentation, mm -hmm. scroll almost all the way to the bottom, there's an attributes section with right. a disclosure saying, and there's just a whole bunch of them. Yeah. But why would I... Darn it. <laughs> Jerks. Did you read the appendix yet of that book? Like I've suggested many no. times. I I read one of the appendices about the editors. Yeah, you should really read the appendix of the book because it tells you these things that 
I wish I had read at the beginning of the book, but you should really not read any more of chapter seven or eight until you read all the appendices. Okay. Go read all the appendices. The only the only thing that bothers me about this page in the uh, scripting API documentation is it it has a the attributes section isn't a dedicated page itself. There's no there's no HTML page anywhere on their site that's holding this information. It's just in the menu. So it never shows up. It hardly ever shows up in a Google search. Um, you just have this disclosure triangle or disclosure plus and minus thing that shows you links to all of the various attributes, but there is no parent page for them. That kind of bugs me. So I started filing bugs against uh, Visual Studio for Mac. Oh, yeah? I keep bumping into weird stuff. Um, there was one spot where they wanted, uh, we're making, so we were making the sound manager and we're making a bunch of public, uh, audio clips, mm -hmm. I think. Where was it? Uh, sound manager. Yes. Public audio clip. So I got to make like 12 of these things and they all have the exact same beginning text. So I just copied public space, audio clip space. And I was just planning paste type the name of the property, semicolon return paste type the is name it, of the property. What is it trimming your space? Trimming. It is not only trimming the space, but it's putting in like a line feeder too. Oh, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> and I, I have certain rules about my text editors, and one of them is that don't mess with the text. Yeah. Um, I'm about to go through here and turn off all of the, um, uh, quote, closing, parenthesis closing, brace closing, square bracket closing stuff. Because yeah. it just keeps happening in weird places. And there's even, in certain situations, if the thing that you have just typed will be a single line statement, it will automatically put in the semicolon for you. Hmm. Like, destroy, and then, like, a game object. Destroy a game object. If you start typing that, it will automatically put in the semicolon at the end. Like... I have muscle memory for typing that semicolon. <laughs> so now I have two. <laughs> or I'm just typing over it and then I'm confused. Like I just get lost of exactly where I am. Um, it would help if I was really good at touch typing. But I spend way too much time looking at the keyboard while I'm typing. Which means I'm not looking at the screen. So I'm not seeing all the cool stuff that it's trying to do to help me. That's actually getting in my way. Sam, I'm not a big fan of the auto-closing features because they're in the way like editors that let you just type over it it's fine but i just feel like i'm wasting my life every time i type over one <laughs> but it's, it's it's always it's always more effort to move my hand over to the arrow keys or the mouse and reposition the cursor than it is to just type the character and I, yeah. I understand the benefits like it's it makes it a lot easier to not well not leave would... one out but yeah it would also probably help if I did all of my work all the time in a single environment. But trying to get Xcode, Visual Studio for Mac, and Visual Studio for Windows to all act exactly the same way is a fool's errand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had kind of made peace with Xcode and Visual Studio for Windows acting differently. But now Visual Studio for Mac is introducing a third way and all of my systems are getting broken. You could just switch all of your code just to Atom or something like that. I, I was considering it today. Just kick it all to BB Edit and forget about it. Um, something, that, something that's cross-platform that works the same on both. Now, Atom is pretty much the only editor I've found that it's... It's as close to parity as you're going to get in a Windows and Mac app. There's very, very little differences between the two. Mainly because it's, you know, technically a web app under the scene. 
under the hood. Yeah. Hmm. And that'll help to a certain degree. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's not. It's not going to run your code. It's just a, a convenient place to type things in and then save and switch back over to Visual Studio and build it. As a matter of fact, when I was uh, entering the bug report for Visual Studio for Mac, I found a typo on the bug report form. <laughs> and this is the point at which, like, either that becomes recursive and meta, or it just means that I need to stop. <laughs> Like I have, I have crossed the limits of utility, and I have now become unfunctional. <laughs> Just go outside at that point. <laughs> I was like, I think I will spend the next hour just entering bug reports, just just over and over again, filling in kind of the same stuff. <sighs> Lovely. Um. <clears throat> And this one's a little funky, and I don't know whether it's a style issue on the book or whether it's a common sort of thing. There's a spot in the book where they were going from the gun only being able to fire single rounds to when you had a power-up doing a spread triple fire. Mm -hmm. And so they have us rewrite a section of the code to just have a function that spawns a bullet. And that all makes total sense right up until the point when they decided not to hand back the game object from that function. They decided to hand back the rigid body mm. kind of inside the bullet. Well, because of the way the physics is working, we're going to be applying velocity to the bullet. So the very first thing that we're going to do once we hand the bullet back is just get the rigid body but there's something profoundly unnatural feeling about, oh, I've got the rigid body. Well, I can always just get the parent. Like, and maybe that's part of the difficulty is I'm used to a, a stricter definition of encapsulation mm -hmm. that says like, you can access your children, but it's a really bad idea to start trying to access your parent. Like, you don't know who your parent is. You have no idea. And so, Going upstream from that is a bad idea. Well, in this case, in this particular context, I always know in that code that my parent is going to be a bullet. So accessing my parent is not a problem. Um, but it goes against kind of all my previous training on that particular topic. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you don't you don't have to do that. That was just in the book. Yeah. Well, and that was part of the thing is I wasn't sure if that kind of thing was typical. I have all. seen a, I have seen quite a bit of other tutorials and resources of people calling upstream. Yeah, I don't know. So it, the larger topic from a lot of these points is the like okay, I'm writing in Visual Studio. I'm writing in C-sharp. There's a lot of stuff that I'm getting for free. Mentally. Just because I know C-sharp. I'm used to working in editors largely like this. Mm -hmm. And so certain elements of this are just dirt simple for me and providing no friction. And then there's other spots where I, I'm rewriting sections of my brain to be able to try and think of the way... Unity thinks about some of these things. And some of those are easier than other ones. Yeah, I guess I'm my approach has been a little bit different where I'm just trying to pick up what I can about the tools, but mainly with the single obsessive thought of how can this help me make VR games right. and experiences. Like, I don't really care. I know Unity is really built around working as a collaborative team, but I'm working on my own and I'm not going to use 90% of the stuff that they talk about and stuff like that. Like I just need to write some code that does certain things or I need to be able to make game objects that do these actions in this order and things like that. And so as you present that, it starts to sound like you're saying 
You really just need to know what you need to know so you can make the games. And I'm going, yeah, but I really want to understand how it all works. And now Which, the world has come full circle and the yeah. roles are reversed. <laughs> this is pretty much where we started last year with massively unqualified development. Yes. Except that Joe is the one who really wanted to understand exactly how all of the stuff worked. And I was like, no, I get to like chapter 15 of one of these books and I just kind of spin off and start doing my own thing because I can't be held in by what they're trying to teach me any longer. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. There's no value judgment there, Joe. I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah. It's just amusing. Um, so that covers... The weird stuff that I found. Sweet. Yeah, just just the weird thoughts that I had as I was going through those chapters. Um, so that's been my fun for the week. What have you been doing? I have basically just spent the whole week working on my new project. Um, I think we talked about the first day of it last week because we recorded a day late. But uh, one piece of follow-up. I was confused about something called a color map on basically a lot of the two of the asset packs that I'm using have color maps built into their materials. And, you know, they're just basically, you know, a PNG with little blocks of color at different defined coordinates in this thing, a little matrix of colors. Mm-hmm. But it, it was not clear to me how the object in question, say a a desk chair, was telling that thing which color to get. And then I saw, I was watching like a speed run video of somebody doing some level design and they popped over to Maya and made something and then unwrapped the UVs, pulled in a color map that they were using and shrunk down the entire UV inside of one of those little colors. Like, oh, okay, that's how that's happening. So basically they put the entire UV map, like just shrunk it down to like a couple of pixels and put it inside one of those those color cubes. Like, I, I feel like an idiot now, but I guess that's how you do that. Okay. I haven't done anything with Maya yet, so I still feel like an idiot, but that's totally okay. But yeah, my, my question wasn't even with Maya. It was just in Unity. Like, how how is this mesh telling this material which one of these 60 colors to get? Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me, but it's somewhere encoded in the UVs of that mesh somewhere. Yeah, it's a weird one. But it was just bugging me. You know, I'd seen it like two months ago. I'm like, it just kind of nagging away at me. Like, how is this happening? This, this, I see people using this. This, it's some technique, it's some layer of abstraction that I don't understand. But <laughs> I finally saw it when I wasn't looking for it. But anyway, I spent the week um, kind of getting caught back up to where I was in the prototyping phase of building out a basic version of the scene. And honestly, I spent most of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday spinning my wheels. Of you know, I started off Monday, you know, partially determined to make everything myself in Maya. So I started like drawing walls and floors in Maya and sending them to Unity one by one and, and slapping things together. And that got old pretty quickly and ended up rebuilding the scene with some assets, some low poly assets. And basically I went through a couple of days of building a scene, not liking it, unbuilding it, replacing it with other things, hunting for different assets that I could use, and then finally just giving up and just blocking out the scene as best I could with some prototype assets from Unity and the low poly assets, still with the intention that, you know, right now the the floors and the walls are all just built out of floor pan, floor panels from the Unity prototype set of assets. And I'll replace those at some point. The windows aren't even windows. The doors aren't even doors. They're just door objects stuck into the wall. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but it was, you know, doing that kind of kludgy work was enough to get me into the scene where I could have a big enough place in VR to start teleporting around and making sure everything was the right size and figuring out 
just how big the space needs to be. It's still a little bit big. I posted a bunch of screenshots on Twitter the last couple of days. Um, it's still, I started off with, well, I think I've been through like 10 different floor plans now. <laughs> um, but where I'm at now is is almost a square unit. And uh, it's actually shorter on one side, just a little bit. Basically, I'm trying to make an apartment that would exist in an apartment building with three other, with four units on each floor. Um, and this would be just apartment 304. So on the third floor, the fourth unit. So I want, you know, a logical space. I want the building to be square, but I want obviously a logical space in between the apartments for a hallway and some elevators and stairways, even though none of that will ever exist. There's just a part of my mind that it, it can't have those things be off. Um, so I'm kind of building that and I still need to build some stuff, at least reserve some space in the walls for things like utilities and things like that. Um, but I was able to just kind of re-prototype myself into a version of that using those prototype assets and some of the uh, low-poly assets from the store. The this is just a perfect example of Joe being incredibly lazy. Last last Monday, I found uh, an inexpensive set of low-poly assets that I liked quite a bit more than the other two packs I've been working with stylistically. But these this pack, while everything looks great, and it has probably 60% of everything that I would need in this apartment scene, they didn't include any prefabs. It's just meshes. So I have to put everything together myself and then attach colliders. And <laughs> and I'm just like, nah, I'll do that later. I just deleted that entire pack and went back to the, the ones that I don't like as much. You could just spray paint them a nice primer gray and just keep moving. Yeah. So, yeah, essentially that's what I have now. I've you know got a scene with some walls and some floors and then pretty much everything else is a dark gray color. Um. I think maybe the table chairs are white. And that was just enough to, you know, I slowly reduced the, the place in size. You know, I would pop into the headset and be like, whoa, that's really far away. That's not this. It looked closer in Unity. Some of the things are still completely off. I, I teleported up to the kitchen counter this morning and the top of the counter came to about my chin. <laughs> Like, well, I'm a fairly short person, but this doesn't feel right. I, I think I'm looking at your October 6th version. Yeah. With the... God, is that... How many sides is there on your uh, your living room coffee table? Oh, that's a rug, actually. Oh, okay. From the yeah. angle, it was tough to tell. Yeah. Uh, it's like 11 or 12 sides on that. Yeah, it's a weird one. I need to replace that with something round. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, that basically I, I spent more time than I'd care to admit doing and undoing work that I ended up throwing all of it away and redoing everything in three hours on Thursday night so that I could actually have a place to start working with a character and uh, input stuff for the player and this is kind of a weird one the the player object in the scene and the character object in the scene are two completely different things and they're kind of related the player kind of directs the character around but not really so it's not like i'm using pretty much any typical gaming control scheme you're not piloting the character around mm -hmm. you're, you're more just suggesting and it definitely has the ability to veto. <laughs> I, I'm um, looking forward to the point where we can actually talk about the idea on the podcast. Yeah. That's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, suffice it to say, there's one of the primary attributes of the character is just not caring. And that, that's something I, I need to figure out how to code apathy. <laughs> But that's definitely one of my big challenges. And unfortunately, in order to do it properly, 
you're really going to have to care very much yeah about the apathy yeah pretty much so at some point you know kind of being in a slump by the end of wednesday got a little bit done thursday somehow my entire schedule got flipped around and this happens a couple of times a year but i think you can relate but uh, over the last couple of months, I've been getting up at five in the morning every day and kind of living a, a routine lifestyle, working about the same time every day and doing the same kinds of things at you know, roughly the same time. And then uh, that has flipped itself on its head. And now I'm getting up at eight or nine in the morning and staying up till midnight or one and just doing almost all of the work in the evening and nighttime as opposed to first thing in the morning, which is weird, but it's kind of nice because we're at the time of year that I actually like to go outside. So I can go outside when it's nice and then just sit in my office all night when it's dark and rainy. I, I'm with you right up until the point that getting up at eight or nine in the morning feels late. Yeah, it does to me. <laughs> I know, I know, but... That's that's the only part I can't one hundred percent appreciate. No, wrong word. Can't find yeah. the word. No word. So, one thing I, I was worried about when I started working with the asset packs, some of the things I may actually leave in the project long term. Um, some of them I definitely won't and need to replace with my own assets. But I was worried about, you know, I'm using three different asset packs plus Unity's prototyping stuff. How do I make sure, like, I don't want to just leave all this stuff in the project indefinitely. Um, so a little bit of Googling around led me to a tool called Asset Hunter 2, which will, it's basically a Unity plugin that can, I can basically run the app and it'll find everything that I'm using and group all that together in a folder, and then I can go through and clean out the rest of the project structure and delete everything else. So it's kind of a, I haven't used it yet. I haven't bought it yet. It's like a $20 purchase. But just knowing it exists immediately freed me up from trying to make duplicates of everything and organize you know copies of assets into my own folder structure. I'm like, nope, I'm not doing any of that. Just throw it into the scene. If it stays there, then it stays in the project. And that was a very kind of liberating tool to know it exists. Yeah, when you passed me the link for that, I looked into it a little bit. And again, I haven't run it, but I like the way that it works. Mm -hmm. Because it's not looking at the code and trying to figure out what parts you're using. Because mm -hmm. that could absolutely be fraught with peril. Yeah. Um, it looks at the build log to see which assets are actually being included in the project. Um, which is a really neat way to tackle the problem. Now, it may still end up saying this this asset is being used when you don't ever actually add it to a scene. Mm -hmm. Like if there's a prefab and you tied it into your room builder controller or something like that, that's a definite reference to that object, even if that object is never placed on screen. But it will tell you that this particular object has no links to it, apparently, because it's it, it wouldn't work if it did. It's not being included in the final build. Yeah. Which is, I, I just think that's really neat. Yeah, it's a pretty neat tool. I'm okay if it returns some false positives and leaves stuff in there that's not actually being used. As long as it gets most of it, I'm happy to scroll through the rest. Um, but it was just a neat little tool to come across. So there's a couple of settings that I've been keeping track of. Because I don't know anything about anything, I tend to write down things as I change them. And okay. um, because I'm working with such low poly assets, there's a lot of very jagged lines on, you know, what, what should be a straight edge is just a jagged line in VR because of the, the nature of the assets. We're not really using any carefully sculpted assets um so i found some settings in the daydream render settings as well as in the quality settings uh, which 
two different areas. So the first one was just changing the depth format from 16-bit to 24-bit. No idea what that means. Googling that tells me nothing. Um, but uh, I found that in a post last month and did it during the prototype phase and redid it recently and saved the link to that. But uh, it seems to have a pretty big impact um, on those jagged lines. The other one was turning on anti-aliasing in the quality settings. And this is where I I got a little fuzzy or I got a little crazy with how I did this. <laughs> You're not allowed to say you were a little fuzzy about the anti-aliasing, Joe. It's not permitted. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's terrible. <laughs> I didn't even, that wasn't even intended. I feel really bad about that. Please proceed. Let me find uh Okay, so in quality settings, there's another one of those little matrix. You have different levels basically. So you got the platforms up top and the levels of like very low performance all the way up to ultra performance. And then you can specify basically you click on one of those levels and then you can change all the parameters for that level um i didn't really want i'm making a daydream project not really making an anything else project at this point so i just created my own level called daydream and turned off everything else and just i can force daydream in vr to use this specific level i'm not sure if i need to undo that and make kind of multiple versions of it that can um scale up and down depending on the quality of the phone or whether or not the phone is overheating. I'm not sure what I need to do there yet. Right. But but mainly I use this as a way to create a place that I could turn on the anti-aliasing uh, multi-sampling. I set it at 2x at first and that was okay. And then I ended up increasing it to 4x without any noticeable performance decrease at this point. Um, I'm not... I'm not being too careful with that. Like I'm every time I run the app, I'm checking the frame rates and the headset, just making sure I haven't just done something that's really screwed things up. I'm able to keep 60 frames a second at everything I've done so far. But at the same time, I'm not I'm not trying to optimize anything at this point in the project. I'm just trying to get things working. Sure. Um but I'm keeping track of these types of things because I'm like I don't really know what these are doing, but uh, I'm changing them, and I may have to change them back, or I may have to know this information to diagnose a problem later. Yeah, so there's that. Um, I guess the last thing on the project is during the prototyping phase, I talked about the difference between the player and the character, and because the player isn't directly controlling the character, what I had done during prototyping was basically set the character up as kind of an AI. And it was using a nav mesh and pathfinding stuff from Unity to find its way around. And I may end up using that or I may end up kind of turning it into more of a character and controlling it with inputs, but really indirectly. And what I saw today, I need to dive into this more, but the Daydream Elements example project from Google has like nine different example techniques. And one of them is the chase camera demo where they have a little Arctic fox that you can control around the scene. And the, the whole thing is made to demo how the camera will follow the character and rotate a little bit. And mm -hmm. you know, just generally some best practices to not make people sick in VR. I'm looking at it more from the the player input and how they're moving the character around the scene. And I think what they did there is similar to what I need to do for the very basic low-level stuff for my game. So I'm going to spend a big chunk of tomorrow tearing that apart and figuring out how it works. I looked at it today but just couldn't really muster the ability to care, honestly. <laughs> Um, yeah, it just one of those things that what worked in prototyping, as soon as I started to redo it myself this time, I'm like, you know, this is probably not a good idea. <laughs> this feels, you know, this was definitely a kludgy way just to test the proof of concept. I shouldn't redo this here. But, uh, yeah, that's where I am with that. Did you, did you happen to see placeholder Paul in my Twitter feed? I did. 
Isn't isn't he an abomination? Uh, it, it it looks amazing. <laughs> I don't. I think that may be the new mascot for my company. <laughs> oh, the mighty, post- terrible placeholder Paul. Mm-hmm. I mean, every every I, enemy or character is going to need some kind of placeholder until I can make the model for it. So. I I like the fact that placeholder Paul doesn't tell anybody who sees placeholder Paul anything about the game you're making. <laughs> Like, sometimes you can look at an, an opponent and go, hmm, yeah, I, I can see where they're going with this. No, placeholder Paul gives you none of that. <laughs> it's uh, it's a, a really nicely polished cube to a certain degree. Yeah, it's a sphere with some other spheres and some capsules. Yeah. Yeah. And those are just Unity primitive assets. Oh, I didn't know if you'd done that in Maya and, like, put in a musculature or a... Uh, uh, Armature. No. no. Okay. That's just, you know, I right-click 3D asset sphere and then parented some other spheres to it and some capsules and just dragged them around and threw some materials on it. Like, this will do. Turn them into a prefab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Oh, yeah. Well, the nice thing is I can actually, I can still build up all of the scripting that I need to on the character object and placeholder Paul is just a, a child object of the character attribute so I can turn placeholder Paul off and put in other prefabs and other meshes later on oh yeah so yeah that's his genius I, I think you have to give him an armature so you can prep all the animations and everything and then just swap those out while you're at it <laughs> yeah oh yeah Placeholder Paul coming to the asset store soon. <laughs> In like five years when I know what I'm doing. I, you keep suggesting to me that I should do development tools. I think what you need to do is actually do some modeling of a of household objects. Yeah. And they should all have a consistent scale. Yeah, that would be nice. So that you could literally just glom them into a space and everything would come in in the appropriate scale until you decided to shift the scale for these objects and you could select the entire living room and scale them up yeah and everything would still work in the exact same way yeah that's one of my struggle with all the assets that i've seen is most of these assets aren't intended directly for vr you can certainly use them in vr apps but people are more thinking in, in abstract 2d and 3d games and I think a good example I gave Dave the other day was there was a doorway in an asset pack that was like five or six times the size of the king size bed in the same asset pack. Mm-hmm. Like when you're just dragging things to the scenes, unless you're really paying attention to a grid that you're dragging things on, you don't really know which one is the huge one and which one is the small one. Or are they both off? And, yeah, it's pretty inconsistent. You're far more forgiving than I am, Joe. Because my thing is, even if I was making a 3D isometric zombie combat game in somebody's living room, and there's a bunch of them out there, they've been I've seen them back to Xbox 360, if not earlier, where zombies are coming in through the walls and you're fighting them down. Every single object that you have to that you want to put into the space would have to be manually resized, even if you're just doing third-person isometric. The yeah. fact that you're doing VR doesn't actually change that. It just changes how tightly the spacing has to be controlled. But it still has to be... Like, a coffee maker cannot be six feet tall <laughs> in any context. Yeah. So, yeah it's, it's kind of sloppy. Yeah, I, I just... I mean, I, I understand how that happens, but I... It might be an interesting thing to kick feedback to each of those people and go, you're missing a humongous opportunity here mm-hmm. to make this dramatically easier to use. You ha- you know what you were making initially. It shouldn't take you that long to apply a scaling factor to every single one of these objects so that when I pull them out as prefabs, they show up at a consistent scale. Yeah. I mean, just model in a consistent scale and a set of units all of the time 
something. I, I, I don't know enough to know what mechanism you would have to do to do that. I'd really like to believe that you can rescale those things. So instead of making it half the size, you could make it half the size and then tell it now it's at one rather than at 50% so that when it comes over, it comes in at one, which is the right size. I don't know. I'm totally yeah. making it up, but there should be a way to do that. And that, that's, <clears throat> I guess that's one of the things that bothers me a little bit about Unity. You don't ever get to resize anything. You just get to scale things. And the difference of that is, like, I can't ever decide that this door is going to be 2.4 units high, 2.4 Unity units. I, I don't get to set that. I just have to figure out what that looks like in the scene, maybe with a cube, and then resize the door until it fits. Yeah, you almost need like a hidden scale factor so that you can apply that before anything else happens and then it never shows up in the inspector. Mm -hmm. Like after I've done this and locked it, it's stuck. And now I have a new scale factor that is applied after the first scale factor is applied. <laughs> yeah. Um, and having that discussion immediately makes it apparent why you need it very, very badly. Yeah. Like not having this tool or it, it's either a flaw in the tool or it's a obvious flaw in the, in the end product for these asset packs. Mm -hmm. Like somebody somewhere is missing the boat. Or and I if, just don't understand something. Yeah. Or, well, and that's yes. And maybe it's us. I might even lay money on the fact that it's us. <laughs> There may just be this cool checkbox somewhere in that asset pack that makes everything consistently scaled. I Okay. And they don't tell you about it in the documentation because they just assume that you know about it. Everybody yeah. knows about that checkbox. Gosh, Joe, what were you thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Out of the two of us, you're the one who would have. Yeah. But anyway, so that's kind of where I'm at. I've got a lot of, after a week of just playing with assets and basically a slightly grown-up version of playing with Legos, um, I was finally able to spend some time writing a little bit of code and working with input on Friday night. And it was only like three hours worth of work, but man, did that feel good compared to weeks worth of just doing visual stuff. <laughs> Like, hey, these are problems. Problems need solving. I know how to solve problems. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was quite a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to a lot of that this week. I'll probably, I'm not sure when I'm gonna actually replace the versions of the scene I have now. Um, I think I'm just gonna work with what I have and throw some throw a couple other objects in the scene, and see about just kind of keep shrinking the space a little bit until it's cozy but still plenty of, of space for gameplay and at that at that point then i'll be able to start sending stuff to maya you know making the walls figuring out how big the windows are going to be in the walls and i'm still a little i'm still on the fence of how i'm going to light the scene so i'm not sure if i'm actually going to have real windows in the walls with light coming in or if it's going to be more cartoony where the windows can just be meshes with materials on them where they don't actually have light i i, I kind of like both but yeah i just need to play with it more yeah you were previously you've talked about the philosophy of saying what is the least fun part of this and let's make it better Mm -hmm. And just keep doing that until you have something fun. And looking at this image, and this is without actually stepping into the world, but just looking at this image, my opinion is this is no longer the least fun part of the game. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you can continue working on this room for the rest of your life. <laughs> you totally could. And you would become better and better, and the room would become more and more amazing, and eventually you'd just stop living in your own house and just live in this room. But that won't get you a game. Yeah. There was one point where the, the desk is positioned in a corner in this apartment. And it's, just, it's a completely different layout than where I live. But there was one point where I stood up from my desk and walked in the wrong direction. Because <laughs> I've been staring at the desk in this scene. 
And there's only one way in and out of my office, and it wasn't the direction that I went. So yeah, there's that. Awesome. Anyway, um, so that's my project update. Do you want to talk at all about the last couple of weeks we've had new Apple devices and new Google devices. Do you have any interest in talking about those things? I honestly have quite a bit of interest in talking about those things, but I'm not entirely prepared to have that conversation. Okay. Um, I would, we, we had a preview of that conversation earlier in the week and my ability to contribute was relatively limited then. And it hasn't gotten much better since Okay. because I was working on doing the, the coursework and ended up completely misplacing the to do item to, watch the videos that I hadn't caught. Um, I'd like to catch those. Otherwise, I'm just going to be saying wrong things. Okay. And, you know, there's a certain value to that, but as much as we can yeah. avoid it is to be preferred. Yeah. Maybe talk about it next week. Sounds good. And, and for the record, I'm not. we're not necessarily talking about turning this into a tech review show or product review show, more just how these things may relate to VR and AR development or... Mm-hmm in some cases, how they don't relate to those things and they make me sad. Well, Joe, you really want to do Daydream development and Google is releasing a new Daydream phone and Daydream headset. I think we can make a, a sound argument that that's probably relevant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I mean, I, I did not order the new phone and don't really intend to, but I did order the new Daydream View right away. And hopefully that'll be here sometime after the 17th. Well, that'll be even better. Oh, the 17th, though. Nope, not quite in time for the next episode. No. But yeah, the phone itself, we'll talk more about it next week. It's an impressive phone, but it's not impressive enough for me to upgrade from the one I have. I just, it's, there's nothing that really make me want to do that. No, no spoilers, Joe. Well, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. And thanks for listening. The, don't forget to like and rate us on, your, on the podcast player. Oh. Well, don't forget to like and rate us on your podcast player of choice. Thank you for listening. I'm going to leave all of that in. Absolutely. You should you should leave this in too. <laughs> it's got to stop somewhere. <laughs>